Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. On this episode, how the value of development is beginning to impact leading edge schools. Three games on the field. Before we can discuss the value of development, we need to acknowledge what's going on around us. Right now, there are three games happening in education, three games happening simultaneously on the same field. Picture a grass playing surface in a large sports facility. Now picture three different groups on that field. Each group is dressed for a different sport. One group's playing football, the second is playing baseball, and imagine a third's running around doing rounds of golf in teams of four. All of these activities are intermingling. Football goalies dodging pop flies from the baseball game, bat catchers getting pinged by sliced fairway shots, and people in sand traps trying to make a clean shot over the linesman running through the sand. Now, if someone strolled up to you and asked, what's going on here? How would you describe it? Well, you could generalize all three groups together and just say, well, it's sports. I mean, sports, to be fair, is what's common between everyone in this mess. But categorizing this cacophony of activity as sports oversimplifies what's going on. It doesn't address any distinctions. Labeling it sports fails to point out that each group is engaged in distinct activities with different agendas and different intended outcomes within their respective game. The use of the generalized term sports is the same as using the generalized term education. Talking about education as a monolithic entity fails to distinguish the competing values at play within it. There are dramatically different games happening alongside one another in education right now. Here on Reinventing Education, we are referring to these games as values. Each value has a different idea about what the world is and how you need to prepare for it. Therefore, each value has a different and competing idea about what a school education should look like. A school education aims to provide occupational preparation, the cultivation of citizenship, and the development of the individual. How it goes about doing that is influenced by values. On previous episodes, we've looked at how the values of self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity have shaped what a school education looks like. Each value is preparing children for a different kind of workforce and economic system. Each value is preparing children for a different kind of citizenry. Each value is preparing children to develop themselves in different ways. The three values of self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity are playing very different games alongside each other, and yet we call this education. To make matters more complex, and in all honesty, perhaps to stretch this analogy too far, the games are influencing each other. Equipment is being shared between the games. The golfers are now using baseball bats, which launch the ball far further down the fairway than their clubs ever could. Baseball players are finding that footballs are much easier to hit than smaller baseballs, and football players find that using a golf cart leaves them with more stamina in the second half of the game. Alright, I digress. Each value in education is responding to, influencing, and fighting with one another. If we were to talk about education in a meaningful way, it's helpful to highlight how there are three different values at play in education, self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity. Each has very different ideas about what school should look like, so each needs to be addressed individually in order to acknowledge the competing agendas. Hindsight versus looking carefully. 
The previous three values of self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity were relatively easy to point out. We could look back and see them. We could connect historical context to their pedagogical approaches. Development is the next value that is coming online. That's what this episode's all about. The challenge with discussing the value of development is that it's on the cutting edge of what we see happening in education. We can point to a coalescing set of characteristics and entities and squint to see it. We can't yet look back to see the development value, but we can look around us and start to notice it. First of all, definitions. Development means to grow and become more mature, advanced, or elaborate. A development-centered school believes that students leave the system demonstrating development, so that as a citizen, they can demonstrate a capacity for transformation, which prepares them for an occupation in the VUCA economy, implying volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Okay, so there's a lot here. Before I launch into what the classroom looks like, let's set the context by unpacking, first, the idea of the VUCA world, second, how development as a value seeks to be a tool belt, Third, how the first three values, although at odds with each other, actually have something in common. And fourth, how development differs from improvement. VUCA, an acronym I can't stand the sound of. VUCA, not vodka said with a mouthful of shrimp cocktail. VUCA is a term originally used in the military, but it has become an acronym to describe the conditions of our modern world. VUCA is short for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. That pretty much sums up life these days. How do we deal with a world of volatility, where conditions are liable to change rapidly and unpredictably? How do we engage with a world of uncertainty, where conditions are changing and not to be relied on, not known, or definite? How do we approach a world of complexity, with subtle intricacies, nuances, and complex connections? And how do we make sense of a world of ambiguity, where things are open to more than one interpretation and don't have one obvious meaning? To me, this sounds like Alice in Wonderland. Just when you think you get what's going on, the kaleidoscope shifts, tilts, and everything looks different. How do you prepare children for that which is in a state of rapid change? There's a trope when criticizing education. It's to point out that We're preparing children for a world that doesn't exist yet. We don't have a historical precedent for how to plan for what we can't even imagine. How do you play a game where the rules and objectives are constantly in flux? You need a strategy that isn't dependent on the rules as they are, because the rules might change. You need a strategy that works for when the rules change. One such strategy is to get a decent tool belt. Mustard and the Tool Belt Look, I'm Canadian. I put maple syrup in everything. Even salad dressing. You just need four ingredients to make my maple balsamic vinaigrette. Olive oil, maple syrup, balsamic vinegar, and Dijon mustard. If you whisk the first three ingredients, the olive oil, maple syrup, and balsamic vinegar, they don't mix. No amount of effort or time solves this. They'll just separate. Salad dressing that has separated isn't appealing. But add the Dijon and magic happens. All four ingredients blend together, creating a non-separated dressing. This dressing also becomes more than the sum of its parts, though. 
it actually develops a slightly creamy texture, a texture that none of the ingredients possessed on their own. The development value is the Dijon mustard of the school systems. It brings self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity together and creates something new that's more than the sum of its parts. How do you play a game where the rules and objectives are constantly in flux? One way is to develop a strategy that acknowledges that rules will change. Get good at adapting. Get good at transforming. Get good at being flexible yet discerning. This is central to the development value. All three values are still in play in our modern world. Each value is required in some context in a rapidly changing environment. Playing one values game well is not as strategic as engaging with all of them. It's a question of how much do you clash with a value and how much can you navigate it. If the only tool you have is a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. Each value is a tool, a tool for engaging with and navigating the world. However, no single tool is functional for all jobs. Sure, you can try to use a hammer as a saw, but when the situation requires a saw, you're just better off using a saw. The developmental value doesn't bring forth a new tool per se to compete with the other three values. Rather, it brings a tool belt. It attempts to integrate the previous values to draw from their strengths, but also acknowledge their limits. The way forward is to take what is good, functional, and correct about each value and leverage that. At the same time, work to set aside the value's drawbacks, shortcomings, and inherent problems. The development value tries to keep what is skillful about each previous value while never relying on any one value entirely. Attend to what is present and respond skillfully with the tools. What self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity have in common, and how development is the black sheep at the family reunion. It's the annual family reunion. The kids are doing cannonballs into the pool. Uncle Fred's Hawaiian shirt is open while he stands frying in front of the grill, spatula in hand, flipping bratwurst and burgers. Then your cousin strolls up to you. Long, straightened black hair, covering slumped shoulders, a Bauhaus, Bella Lugosi's dead t-shirt, and through long bangs, you hear murmurs. You know this misses the point, right? Excuse me, you say? Yeah, like this whole pretending we've got everything figured out and that everything can be known, put in boxes and measured. You're thinking to yourself, what is this person going on about? They continue. Like, I'm not a nihilist. I'm not saying everything is pointless. But I think it is pointless to pretend something can do something that it can't. I believe everything is partial. We need some humility in the school education endeavor. Perhaps school isn't able to carry out what it intends to do. We must accept it isn't a perfect system, and it never can be. But just because something isn't perfect and it can't do what it intends to, doesn't mean we abandon it entirely. No, we shouldn't attempt to hide its scratches and shortcomings. It also doesn't mean we should pretend it does everything we wish it would. It just means we see that some approaches to school education are better than others at meeting our desired outcomes. You're puzzled, but you say, go on. Well, first of all, school intends to prepare you for the workforce, being a citizen and hopefully for your own development. It is preparing you for a construct about what the world, society, and life is all about. To do this, it needs a target. 
it needs to pause the target in real life, nail it down in place to make preparation for it possible. But you can't compartmentalize life in order to make it digestible and accessible. Then use this abstracted, oversimplified representation of life to train people for the real thing. Sure, we need order. But we also need to acknowledge this strategy's shortcomings. We are glossing over the fact that life is unpredictable. Things change, and at some point, it ends anyways. We believe we can prepare people for life in isolation from life. We do it in institutions, sealed off from the world in school hallways, with the real world abstracted into organized curriculums, which you may be tested upon, maybe it's differentiated to meet where you're at, and maybe it's not. Maybe you're just punished and penalized for not being able to get it. But it's attempting to put the world, life itself, into abstract pieces. And this, this is supposed to get you ready for life outside of school, the place that has artificially constructed life, a world that follows almost none of the rules, conventions, or norms of school. The world is volatile, dude. Yet, school presents an experience that is definite, dependable, and sequential. The world is uncertain. School presents an experience that is predefined, safe, secure, undoubted, and unchanging. The world is complex. School presents an experience that is compartmentalized, linear, and dislocated. The world is ambiguous, yet school presents an experience that is sure, understandable, and obvious. School does not follow the rules, conventions, or norms of the real world. I mean... What do we do when we need answers in life? How closely does that mirror what we do when we need answers in school? School implies that what needs to be known can be known. Things can be certain and things can be ordered. The conditions of life in the real world, outside of school, don't appear to adhere to such a state. Self-discipline attempted to make what you needed to know repeatable. Ambition attempted to make what you needed to know in the world testable. Sensitivity attempted to make what you needed to know in the world about how you go about things. Sure, over time school has attempted to make both the content and process of education connect more to the world. We've seen that shift from self-discipline through to ambition, through to sensitivity. But it says it prepares people for life. And again, it does this in isolation. In a walled garden. In a petri dish. In a kindergarten in an incubator. This seems contradictory to its intended outcome. Why not just engage with the world? All of the best laid-out lesson plans, learning objectives, standardized assessments, differentiated tasks, and well-intentioned feedback appear divorced from life. At best, you'd at least hope for a simulator, like when they train pilots before hopping into an actual cockpit. Instead, it's like we write a paper about a video which explained the steps to make a paper airplane and then toss people behind the controls. I mean, you're a teacher. What do you think? Uh, so you just cough and then awkwardly distance yourself from your cousin as the truth of what was just said starts to sink in. You bite into your hamburger. It's topped with relish and heavily vinegared hot pepper rings. You hold your elbows awkwardly wide with your neck reaching forward to avoid dripping anything on your shirt as the relish plops onto the warm poolside concrete below. It sinks in that a school education influenced by development brings with it a humility. 
It is the first to acknowledge the characteristics of VUCA in life. Oh man, I hate the sound of that acronym. Nonetheless, it notes that we can never be sure about things. Although self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity appear to be very different on the surface, you see what they hold in common now. All three values believed that they had an answer to what was certain. They each believed they were the only tool that was needed. The only tool you needed is what they brought to the table. The only tool you needed was either self-discipline or ambition or sensitivity as an end goal. Each value believes it is the ultimate answer, but really each is just a partial solution. Each has its shortcomings and the jobs that it doesn't handle well and its own unsolvable problems. Like the old line says, a problem can't be solved on the same level of consciousness that created it. Hence, each value that has emerged has solved some of the problems of the previous value, but also created new difficulties of its own. Definitions and setting the table taking longer than the meal itself. Development and improvement may be thought of as synonyms, but for the purposes of our conversation, we need to highlight the differences between them. Definitions. Improvement. Make or become better. Development. Grow or cause to grow and become more mature, advanced, or elaborate. There's a lot there. Let's break apart that list of what is meant by mature, advanced, and elaborate. Mature meaning to become fully grown or developed. Advanced. Far on or ahead in development or progress. And elaborate. Detailed and complicated in design. Development isn't just about becoming better at something, it's about expanding too. Think of improving as expanding vertically, think of developing as expanding horizontally to encapsulate more. Improve as getting better at something you can do, develop as moving into potentials you didn't previously have. Improvement as adding on to, development as enhancing. Development opens new fields of possibility within which you can improve. Development contains within it improvement, but development is much larger in scope. Improvement is continuous and linear. Development may be linear at times, but it is often discontinuous. Discontinuous development involves distinct and separate stages with different kinds of behavior occurring in each stage. This suggests that the development of certain abilities in each stage, such as specific emotions, ways of thinking, have a definite starting and ending point. Really quick example. There is a caterpillar stage, a pupa stage, and a butterfly stage. A caterpillar doesn't improve and become a pupa. I can never say that word properly. It enters a new stage of development that involves transforming what it was previously, just as a pupa doesn't improve itself into a butterfly. The development value focuses on transformation because transformation is a good strategy to adapt to changing conditions. The appreciation of transformation is growing in the mainstream. But more often we see the self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity camps doubling down on their approach instead. However, this tool belt and transformative development value is starting to spread. Development isn't the dominating value in our workforce and citizenry, but it's on the peripheral. The development value can be seen most vividly in leadership culture at the moment. 
Books are permeating these development values into the highest rungs of leadership circles. Here is a developmental reading list. Harvard researchers Lisa Laskow, Leahy, and Robert Keegan's Immunity to Change and An Everyone Culture Becoming a Deliberately Developmental Organization, Otto Scharmer's Theory U, and Frederick Leloux's Reinventing Organizations. All of these books have been huge over the last handful of years. Developmental stages are making their way into publications about leadership, which address the strengths and shortcomings of the socialized, self-authoring, and self-transforming mind, a now somewhat common three-stage developmental model highlighted by Robert Keegan, which helps to acknowledge how different people appear to have fundamentally different software for engaging with the world depending on their stage of development. Some of the wealthiest companies in the world are exploring the benefits of becoming intentionally developmental organizations. We hear buzzwords about teal, holacracy, and self-organizing organizations, which are being used to navigate the complexities and challenges of our current society and economy. Developmental researchers such as Susan Cook Greuter, Don Beck, Terry O'Fallon, Claire Graves, Jean Gepsler, Piaget, they've all presented research-backed models that highlight different stage conceptions for how adult and development unfolds. There is still a lot of disagreement between them and gaps between models, but the proliferation of stage models shows that there appears to be something here that's worth digging into. All of these can be traced back to the developmental value. According to Frederick Lelou, author of Reinventing Organizations, there are characteristics of developmental organizations. The three main clues are self-management, wholeness, and evolutionary purpose. Self-management, operating through peer relationships rather than hierarchy or consensus. Wholeness, individuals no longer need to attempt to edit out their shortcomings, but rather can bring doubts and vulnerabilities along with their strengths. An evolutionary purpose. Gone is predicting and controlling the future. The group is seen as having a sense of direction of its own. The group is open to see what is present and acknowledge what the organization itself wants to become and what purposes it will serve. <sighs> okay, so I've taken my frickin' time setting the table for this one. Let's eat. So what does a school education look like when it's under the influence of the value of development? Pioneers versus hackers. The development value is arriving in education through two distinct groups, pioneers and hackers. Pioneers are going out clearing the land and building the first development-centered schools. They are creating the buildings, the programs, the staff, and the culture. I applaud them for the hard labor this involves. Right now, there are a handful of schools acting as pioneers who are embodying the elements of developmental-centric education. Some have even identified themselves as development-centric or even called themselves integral schools. For example, in Berlin, there's the ESBZ. There's the Freie Naturalschule Barnum, just outside of Berlin, Switzerland's Integrale Tagesschule Winterthur, and the Millennium Middle School in San Francisco. No doubt there are more out there. In future episodes, we are planning to reach out to some of these schools to help give us a clearer picture of what happens inside their institutions. The other camp I mentioned are the hackers. Educators who are in more conventional school settings who are attempting to hack what needs to be done in school. Hackers are using the standard expectations of conventional schooling as a Trojan horse to bring in the development value. On the surface, they may appear to be holding up the status quo, 
but a closer look reveals they are playing a different game than many of their colleagues. They do what needs to be done, but for a different reason and for different outcomes that still meet the needs of the status quo, but also serve the development value. Let's explore what a development-centric school would look like using the three principles from Frederick Leloux. Schools should be self-organizing, there should be an evolutionary purpose behind it, and the wholeness of school, teachers, and students is acknowledged. Schools should be self-organizing. No longer will school be one-size-fits-all. What the school looks like will be influenced by the school's unique factors and agendas. The students and teachers should have autonomy to organize what would best serve the individuals and groups that comprise the school. Students across a district, a state, across a country, and across the world have incredibly different needs and contexts. Start with the needs of the people. Start with the context of the situation and work out to create a system. This is a massive shift from the previous stages, which created a system that required the people to fit it. Historically, we've had a one-size-fits-all answer to what school needs to look like within a country, but this served uniformity and perhaps efficiency, but not necessarily the maximizing of potential. Okay, sure, but what does the development school actually look like? Well, diversity. See, there's no single answer. The school should be granted the autonomy and capacity to shape itself to create what is needed to best serve the people involved. It would also be an expression of what the needs are for the development given the students and their community, among other factors. What it looks like would tie into what the evolutionary purpose was. All right, so what does evolutionary purpose look like within a school? Well, by evolutionary purpose, I don't mean a mission statement. Rather, a guiding principle that reflects the core reason the organization, the school itself, exists. It is the impact the school or this organization wants to make. It wants to determine how it serves the workforce, society, and the individual. The school isn't there just because there are enough students in a local area to warrant opening up another building. The school develops around the intention to serve a purpose for the individuals, groups, and societies impacted by the school's work. The reason for this will differ dramatically between schools, between groups, communities, and regions. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but... Think of it like vegetables. In recent years, we've seen some shift away from large-scale industrial agriculture towards locally produced and organic homegrown foods. I believe a similar decentralization of education is on the way. A nationwide entity may not be equipped to deal with the diversity of needs that the more bespoke or small-scale education could provide. What school looks like will vary. I also believe that our value of Quality education will increase, making quality teaching more widely available in unconventional formats, which may dismantle our ideas about what school needs to look like. Just look at the impact that YouTube tutorials have had on the sharing of information and skills in the last half a decade. One possible way this might play out is the evolution of online learning. Khan Academy has started this trend, but I still believe it aims to serve the ambition value more than any other by making access to the education possible for anyone to improve their achievement, which is totally excellent, but I just think we'll see an evolution in terms of the content provided and the value of high-quality delivery of that content. What's coming is 
that the artificial line between school and real life will continue to blur and diminish. Rather than guess what a child needs in the life, we'll zoom in on the here and now. We'll assess what a child needs now from school in order to thrive in their life. This isn't limited to what a student needs to thrive in their current school subjects. It would also include meeting a student where they are, developmentally and within their capacities. Traditionally, school has been about put in the work now for the payoff and benefit which will come to you much, much later. The school wants to determine how to serve now and later. To do this, we will need to start valuing more things in school beyond what is easily measured and has traditionally been used to sort merit. Development-centric schools will bring a diversity of capacities to the table. Ambition schooling set up the game that could be easily measured, and that what is easily measured can be easily assessed, and what can easily be assessed can be used to sort people. Well, sensitivity attempted to take this one-size approach and minimize its marginalizing effects. Development will now generate curriculums that focus more on difficult-to-measure capacities. Ambition schools had faith that test scores are an authentic measure of merit, but test scores are partial. Achieving high marks on tests does assess a certain set of capacities, but most tests only measure what is easy to measure. Assessing what is easy to measure ignores what is difficult to quantify or qualify. And by ignoring what is more complicated to measure, we ignore and discard a lot of more complex capacities. Capacities that are required in the VUCA world. Development-centered education would shift towards focusing on that which is difficult to measure instead of privileging a narrow band of capacities that help you do well on tests. Now, it is possible that we'll see some articulation of different developmental models or stages of development within school itself, and what this looks like is yet to be explored. One possible example I've heard would be that we'd have goals for certain stages of development by a given age. For example, it might be expected that by a certain age, students have developed a certain stage of moral development, and that if someone is still egocentric, when ethnocentric morals are expected, there would be the equivalent of remedial projects to help them address and develop these capacities. Now, even my own shoulders raise a little at this idea of determining the characteristics people need to demonstrate. Why should an organization, let alone a school, have the right to do this? Well, perhaps they shouldn't, but the problem is we're already doing it. Schools are already having a dramatic impact on the social and personal development of children, but very little of this impact is explicit or consciously stated. It is just colored and influenced by the different values which are calling the shots about what education looks like. A self-disciplined school embeds a respect for authority. Ambition school embeds a respect for achievement and marks. Sensitivity school embeds a respect for others regardless of their situation and development school embeds a respect for development. This focus will help to solve some problems from the previous stages, but will also open up new problems that only development will bring to the table. How do you go about consciously deciding and articulating how people need to develop? The development value is not a cure-all, but I do see it as a step forward by at least making our intended influence explicit 
and therefore hopefully skillful. Don't anticipate the curriculum will be thrown out altogether. However, I believe it will continue to shift away from content-based curriculums, and which were really the center of self-discipline and ambition schooling, towards process and capacities for transformation and adaptation. At the core of development is the importance of the capacity for transformation, a willingness to reinvent what has been known and relied on before, to meet new challenges that require new approaches. Students in development schools will learn to transform their sense of self, transform their relationships, transform their actions, and transform how they engage with their environment. The resilience, drive, and care from the previous three values lie at the foundation of making this possible. And maybe you're asking yourself, but how will we know who should go to university, college, or trades? Well, the changes towards a wider range of capacities is already under the way. Now, in 2018, more and more top schools, elite schools, are moving away from using SAT scores or SAT scores or similar standardized tests as part of their entry requirements. If the development value begins to have more impact in education, we'll see a shift away from prioritizing the easy-to-assess skills and shift towards those that are a little more woolly. What that will look like is just starting to unfold now. We seem to be wanting to figure it out. And what's a teacher doing in all this? Well, the teacher's role shifts towards being a coach. The teacher is someone who helps act as a mirror to help children see their needs and how to approach them in meaningful ways. Are teachers masterminds who know everything about how another person should live? No, but they do have tools. You can kind of picture teachers having three dials in front of them when they're operating from the development-centric value. One dial labeled self-discipline, one labeled ambition, and the other labeled sensitivity. The goal of the teacher would be to tune into the right mix required to serve the student and help their ability to bring forth what value is needed when. Create a system that is able to serve students where they are at to develop in the widest range of capacities. And everything is allowed on the table, not just your achievement, not just what you're sensitive to, but your whole range of self, and that includes the teacher as well. At times, what's going on in the development-centered classroom might resemble the healthy aspects of a self-discipline, ambition, or sensitivity classroom. At other times, it might not resemble school as we know it at all. School, in the developmental value, is flexible. There is a dynamic between planning, intention, and structure, alongside being open to what is arising and where attention should be given. Many teachers have had experience with this. Ask any teacher. All of us have had stories about setting aside the lesson plan because of a moment of serendipity that interrupted us and opened a teachable moment. We set aside our planned agenda and responded to what was in the room. Perhaps it was something to do with student interest, an unexpected question that all of a sudden brought the room to life, a butterfly that flew through the class window, or a situation in a child's life that was shared with the class. Whatever the stimulus was, we set aside our structure. And although we didn't know where it was going to go, it was as though the class, the individuals, organized what would happen next and brought forth something really incredible. Most often this experience is one of the most memorable moments of the school year and students talk about it and they're learning they drew from it. Now, I am not pretending 
that every moment of a development-centered school will be a magical experience of flow states and serendipity, but that kind of willingness to pay attention to what is arising within a group and to go with it skillfully is a component of the developmental education. Developmental-centric schools are just emerging now. We are beginning to see it enter the mainstream of the workforce, citizenry, and self-development, but it represents only a tiny fraction of the influence that self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity have. On future episodes, we hope to interview some of those who are working in developmental-centric schools to gain more practical insights into what they're doing. Development-centered education is not a solution to all of education's problems, but its approach to what a school education should look like may be the best fit for the VUCA world we imagine our children are entering. Hey everyone, just before we get to the portion of the podcast where Brennan and I discuss some of the ideas that I've just highlighted, I uh, just wanted to give you the forewarning that the audio quality of our discussion that you're about to hear, it's not perfect. It's at times a little bit digital sounding. We sound like robots that might be slowing down. This is just due to the fact that our only possible Wi-Fi connection with each other wasn't that strong as I'm in the south of France at the moment. Very rural area, and the Wi-Fi here seems to be like the people on vacation. Very slow-moving, easygoing, and uh, not in a rush to do anything. So uh, just giving you the forewarning that at moments it's not perfect quality, but perhaps if you know that ahead of time, it won't be so bad when you hear the little blurs and slurs. Regardless of how robotic we may sound at times, I hope you enjoy this portion of our chat. Hello, okay. Brendan O'Leary. Hello, Rob McLeod. Uh, episode seven. Yep. End of two. season one. Season one finale. Development as a value. The Basically, the reason why this podcast, podcast kind of exists. Um, the idea of taking those three big values that we've talked about heavily in the last three episodes and kind of giving our spin on how we move forward from the three different types of schools um, that are kind of up and running as of now. So I want to talk about three big kind of sections this idea of development and what it is and just kind of fill it out a little bit and define it a little more possibly and how it currently looks in society um, as an emergent value and then how it currently looks in school and where that may go in the future. All right. So start with Alrighty. how we got to development then. Okay. So I just want to take a few Seconds here to look at your metaphor of the three games. Um, I think it holds pretty well that you have the self-development value, the ambition value, and the sensitivity value that all have slightly different takes or very different takes on how school and society should operate. And just for um, the sake of consistency, you said self-development there, but we're saying self-discipline value, ambition, sorry, yes, and sensitivity. Wrong. I'm already already making errors. Yeah. Self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity. So the self-discipline school um, 
the the very rule based or hierarchical based um, what you might look at the Victorian style classroom as we defined at the ambition school which is what we see currently with a lot of competition for um, uh, test results and, and um, competition with, within classrooms and within schools and then the sensitivity kind of value that we're kind of seeing coming more into schools that are aims to include and allow everybody to achieve within this kind of system and you kind of uh, liken them to three different games that were being played at the same time on the same field um, and how those games not only interact with each other but but also have feedback loops that lead to each game slightly changing and taking parts from other games and kind of molding them to fit their own uh, set of rules or values um, what this means is that we have three different kind of paradigms with all of their different agendas all aiming for similar end goals of really good citizens inside really strong economies with really strong um, uh, self sense for each individual um, and we've talked a lot about their differences one similarity you brought up was that they all share their belief they all share the belief that their set of rules or their explanation for the world is the correct one not only that they're the correct one but that they are sufficient to solve the needs of society by themselves sure yeah it, we you only need one of these you only need to be defined or to lead one of these values as your uh, as your main core kind of driving force yeah um we're going to kind of dig into this a lot more because the development value that we're going to talk about today changes that. It's introduced the idea that you need all of them or there is a balance or is there, there is a way to um, bring these three together to take the best from each uh, element. Yeah. The, the other thing, it, yeah, just go ahead. The development value, what it's saying is, yeah, certainly. Each of these three previous values certainly have their strengths and have a place, um, but none of them are stronger. Well, it's saying all of them are partial. Each one okay. of these definitely brings something to the table, but it's not the entire answer. And you'd be better off selectively and strategically gathering from each, taking their strengths, but doing your best to minimize their deficiencies if you do that, that's stronger than relying on any one of them entirely. Which, when you say it that way, makes sense and is obvious. But as we'll see and as we'll dig into more, it's very easy to double down on what you believe when the universe or the world or your system is kind of maybe not working in the way you want it to for, for all involved. Um, one other big thing that kind of pops up and I, I will dig into more is the idea that all of those three um, values or value-led systems, they put the distant future or at the very least the next step in the chain as the main focus. Mm -hmm. Whereas what development tries to do is to bring in what's happening right now as well as what will happen in the future. 
So there is a, I'd say an obvious deficiency in the three values we talked about before that we haven't touched on really in the previous episodes. You're nailing it, O'Leary. All righty. Well, I had a good listen to your, your kind of talk. I mean, you, you, you went for it. It was 40-odd minutes of laying the table <laughs> and context, and it, it's really clear. It's really good. But, of course, what that does is throw up just as many questions as, as answers. So uh, a 40-minute explanation. We've now got 60 minutes or so to kind of <laughs> unpack that further or dig into many of the things you've said. Um, what I wanted to do very briefly is tell a little story, my version of, of our story so far, the version that talks about society and school moving from a feudalistic kind of traditional hierarchical duty-led um, state and school system to one that mirrors capitalism more, what we might call a modern school system. It's meritocratic, um, it's about freedom, um, and it's very much about gaining academic capital or certificates, qualifications, and so on. We talked about uh, a, a more um, socialist kind of postmodern and inclusive fur kind of um, sensitivity value. And that kind of, um, we need to kind of now look at those three from a little bit of a distance and see actually um, how they're kind of playing against each other in the in the current world so that we can talk about this word that you don't seem to like, but I think sounds great, which is VUCA. VUCA. Yeah, That's I really, I wish we could have rearranged those letters into a different acronym. There's just something about VUCA Kuba. that just, it sounds very Star Trek-ish or, or well, it's almost self-conflating. Like yes. Yeah, but I think Luca makes sense from the story I'm just about to tell. I'll give you a, a I'll I'll just kind of gloss over a lot of the details. But so as feudalism gave way to capitalism, this kind of dynamism emerged within society that was um, anti-ethical to this kind of to the old kind of hierarchical and static system. It was a story where social mobility kind of became possible. Um, and, and then over the course of the 20th century, and I guess late 19th century, advertising emerged and, and more products emerged that created and suggested needs. And this kind of basically sped up the change. Um, and there was a, within society, there was huge changes to the industrial era, um, but seemed on some level to follow logical paths. Um, but then, I guess, for me, the the stock market crash of 1929 seems to be an obvious point of where that paradigm of like logical ambition that would taken over um, started to see people started to see or or introduce the idea that it was quite volatile. It wasn't actually as predictable as um, as we thought. So it, it was the dynamism turned into more volatility and um, we kind of began then to see that as a double-edged sword and said that, you know, this kind of like uncertainty and this, uh, this um, dynamism, this change could hurt us, but actually we could also take advantage of it. Um, I guess the insurance market is an example of that. 
of like, we can sell risk on, we can pack it up risk and sell it here and there. And that story became more and more prevalent over the 20th century into the early 21st century. And uh, by being ahead of the stocks and shares game, you could kind of like make a fast buck. And this was, this actually played further into that ambition kind of value. And so there was a belief though that, yeah, it was volatile and unpredictable, but if we had more and more and more information, we could get a better and better model of how things were going to work out. Um, but then I guess as we began to uncover more and more layers of complexity and we made the system itself more complex, um, in, in a, an attempt to outbeat other players. So this kind of insurance turned into risk management and futures, derivatives, hedge funds, and all of this that eventually led, I guess, to the 2008 crash. Um, we became aware that as this sensitivity value kind of rose up with these deconstructionist methods, we got to this kind of uncomfortable truth that even if you know every element, there is that one in a million event that will crash the entire system. And that's even if you look at it just inside an economic kind of model, but when you start to talk about the wants and needs of seven and a half billion humans, it was very clear that there was absolutely no way that we were ever going to be able to predict outcomes. And so these complex systems, um, they were always going to be ambiguous. And I think that's the big one. I think that's the big one that development seeks to kind of take account of. That, yeah, change happens. Yeah, um, things are unpredictable. But actually, things are ambiguous. And we're entering this period now where this VUCA concept um, tries to, I guess, take into account ambiguity and the long tail of of how you have to be aware of what's happening in the moment and be responsive to that. It's not good enough just to have really strong models for risk. Yeah, and it's also highlighting that the, <clears throat> well, you already addressed it with the school example of believing that what's happening right now is stable enough that later in the future, things will be the same. And this has been the school yeah. model of saying, well, yeah, what we're teaching you right now may or may not be that relevant to you now, but it's really important because down the road, this will matter. What, you know, this is a gross overcharacterization, but I would say one of the emerging principles of just being alive, being an adult in 2018 is, is starting to question like, yeah, you know, what, <laughs> what things are certain 20, 30 years from now, you know, speaking from, sure. from a Western perspective, like there's a lot of people our age who are, you know, questioning like, Hey, this pension system we're paying into, is this going to be around in the form that we know right now, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from, from now when, when I might be drawing from it. And that's just one of sure. dozens of examples of like, well, the things that seem so certain right now, that are comprising our modern world, are those going to be, can we, can those be relied on decades from now? Um, and on top of that, the ambiguity you're mentioning of like, 
within this changing world, we've got all these narratives, we've got all these stories largely influenced by the value that's governing us. Um, but is that actually what's going on? And how, how much of our story about what's happening in this rapidly changing world is actually accurate or relevant or useful? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that idea of ambiguity uh, being that no matter how good your model is, you won't know. But the solution doesn't seem to be that you just have to be more and more prepared. That's only part of it. So this idea of development as a value, um, for, from my understanding, of it, it seems to rest heavily on the idea of being aware of what is happening now and the the interdependence of like the variables that are happening and the things that are happening around you trying to make sense of what is happening right now and being ready for what could happen next so um being, being ready for the next uh, set of events but that by itself is not enough because you then have to be very responsive to these ambiguous and uncertain events. So being ready will take you so far, but also being responsive. And I think this is, this is going to be key because I think school society very much school, very, very much is not necessarily designed currently to be responsive to what is happening now. Say that again, because I think that's, that's maybe at the core of the development value of school. I think so. And think kind of dancing around it for a few days, reading your notes and listening to the first half of the podcast. And um, yeah, so the awareness is very key and clear. And I think we're good on some levels of being somewhat aware of in society of what may happen next, but being responsive to what's happening right now, especially when it is unpredictable and ambiguous. So I will definitely dig back into that quite a lot more. Um, but can we talk a little bit more about what you mean by development? So you talk about transformational and how development as a, as a value is all about being able to transform and so you're let's say you're aware of your situation as much as possible you're responsive to what's happening what do you mean by transformational well you and i are both fans of the hero's journey as laid out by joseph campbell and i think there's a lot of overlap between the hero story and the developmental value and transformation the idea that there may be a situation that requires something of you that you haven't had to previously bring forth in your life. So when we're talking about this development and transformation value, what we're talking about is saying there are probably, there's probably a certain way of being in your life that has worked for, for you up to this point, but now circumstances, the situation, the context, the environment has changed enough that that's not going to be what's required of you now. And instead, um, something new, something you haven't previously been needing to demonstrate is what's being called forth and required in the situation. So are you prepared or able to set aside what's previously worked 
and develop some new capacity, like in the hero story, can you develop a new way of being to meet these changing and new circumstances? Sure. And I think that you talked a little bit about development versus improvement. So, you know, it may be semantic on some level, but I think that it's, it's important to have this clear that we're talking more about improvement as like, this is what I am right now and let's make it just better. Let's improve what's already happening. This is um, taking what we're doing in schools and just making them better. And there's a lot to be said for that, of course, but actually to mature or grow or become this word of actualized or flourishing, these terms that have been used for millennia to describe uh, human beings becoming uh, what they can be. Um, this is the, the key to what we're going to try and paint as a, as a need for school to be able to transform itself and transform uh, on all those levels within it. So as an individual, as the group, as the community, as the nation, as the, as the globe, this is going to be, um, I guess I thought of it more as like a 3D expansion. It's more than just moving along a single line. It's moving off in, into, I guess, holistic kind of like, um, when you begin developing, you don't necessarily know where you're going. You're, you're responding to needs and dealing with them in the moment. But I mean, of course, it doesn't mean you have no long-term plans. Of course not. But this idea of transformational is absolutely key to bringing um, the three other values together. And development is potentially discontinuous meaning it's not linear it's not a clear line of progression it, at times development is discontinuous you i i cringe every time someone uses a caterpillar um butterfly metaphor like the phoenix burning off kind of imagery but sure there is this element that like no the thing that's now developing is arising out of having set aside what has, who you've previously been, what has previously worked. And I think that's more in alignment with this VUCA framework for seeing the world. Because when things are volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, the ways that you need to engage with that are likely discontinuous and context dependent and shifting. This moves away from the view of the world, which I think would characterize the first three values we've discussed of the self-discipline, definitely the ambition, um, and to some degree, the sensitivity, where there's this, as you said, this kind of certainty, this like, well, we're on this cultural evolutionary path that, you know, there are certain things that are always going to be here and relied upon, and, and we just want to improve this system. That's as sure. as you were highlighting, even just on the economic level, that's been proven in in the twenties and thirties and in two thousand eight. These things aren't certain. You know, we might need a more discontinuous model to better approach the complexity of the world right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm still getting my head around kind of the implications of this value because it is so 
broad and so um, it, it has so many potentials to change what is going on inside school and society. So I think it's interesting that you talked about it being introduced very much at a leadership level. And I want to talk about that a little more, but I just want to go back to this idea of um, using what is relevant now and taking the values that you have at your kind of disposal or the three values we've pointed out, the self-discipline, um, the ambition, and the sensitivity, and using them almost like um, tools within your tool belt. You know, it sounds slightly cynical, but clearly it's not. You're just using the values that you believe in and have inside yourself to respond to the situations that are in front of you. And it's kind of your, the word you've used with me before is a skillful response or a skillful use of these kind of values to navigate the situation around you. Yeah, and one other kind of analogy I've heard used to describe the development value, or, you know, I'm a huge fan of integral theory. And to a large degree, what we're talking about is the, the integral stage of development. I've chosen not to bring that into the podcast so much because I find the, the integral world brings with it its, its whole entire set of jargon that, you know, we'd need 20 episodes of this podcast just to unpack. Um, sure, and so I don't if, think we, we need it for, for the job we're trying to kind of uh, unpack right now. Sure, and so, it, if you're a fan of integral theory, basically I would say this development value we're talking about is analogous to integral. If you don't know about integral theory, don't worry, you can totally not worry about this, but what the other analogy I've heard with the development value or an integral value is that it's somewhat chameleon-like. And one of the reasons it's difficult to describe is it's willing to change to some degree to meet the context rather than trying to force a context um, to be digestible by its value. So rather than trying to take a situation and force your self-discipline centric approach to it or your ambition centric approach to it or sensitivity centric approach to it you're attempting to be present to what is now and finding like using yourself as the instrument finding a way that you could best skillfully um, address and face this situation and that might be different depending on what the situation or context is, hence this kind of chameleon-like quality to sure. it. Sure. And it has a potential to sound quite vague. I guess it has a potential yeah. to be, um, it's not really giving you a clear answer. I mean, it's obviously part of that ambiguity itself. If you're going to acknowledge that things are ambiguous, you have to have a solution that is in itself, has that ambiguity in it so that you can, you can, not be that static kind of um, rock when you're, you know, when, when you have a situation unfolding around you. And we're not talking about immediate responses. It's not kind of disaster responses. It's kind of having a response in the midterm and long term as well, from my understanding. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think it's also important to stress here that the development value isn't some superhero. <laughs> it doesn't have like superhuman capacities and that 
because it can draw from these three previous values every time it gets it right. It definitely doesn't. <laughs> the development value can do its best to sort of assess a situation and and kind of see that, oh yeah, well maybe here this is, you know, this is a situation that requires more self-discipline and ambition and, and less sensitivity. But it, it can just as easily be wrong. It can just oh. as easily not be the answer, but it's kind of fundamental software is at least attempting to be more fluid and attempting to be more flexible perhaps than the previous three values. I mean, it almost has the answer to that built in that if it's not working, you would be aware of that as soon as you would be with any of the three values. So you would be aware of it not working uh, just as soon as you would be if you were purely approaching it from one of the other single values because you're kind of utilizing all of those values. So you, if you are in a situation and you are trying to we've reduced it to three values and we talk later maybe a little bit about the three kind of dials that you can maybe use to kind of bring things into balance that's a like a that's a huge reduction of everything to these three kind of components but if you were only using one of them you'd still only find out the worst case scenario at the same time as if you were using all three of them so i think it's almost like why wouldn't you use all three of them and i, I will a little later talk about why I think people already do, but we kind of downplay the ones that are not our key value. But maybe now if we move on to um, how development is growing or emerging in society uh, on, a, on a, a wider scale, and we talked about leadership culture. So the question for me is like, at this point, is this just kind of an elitist kind of uh, mindset that's like, okay, I'm a, I'm a business leader. I have a lot of responsibility. I need to be responsive to the changes within the world. This is better for all of us. But you don't need to be because you are not at this same level of responsibility as I am. Yeah, I'd, perhaps cynically, that could be, that could have some partial truth to it. I think it's Are more... you suggesting I'm a cynic, Rob McLeod? <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? I am not in any way suggesting that you are cynical, Brendan O'Leary. Okay. <clears throat> no, I, th I think the reason it's showing up in leadership culture is if you are a leader in the modern VUCA world <laughs> that we're living in, um, the tried and true self-discipline methods of management um, the pyramidic, the pyramidal structures. Let me just go back and just say, I think evolution, a Darwinian sense of leadership in the modern world is um, leading to the development value showing up more and more. I think if you're operating as a, a traditional self-discipline um, leader in huge companies, you've probably already been weeded out or your approach has led to potentially the failure of your company. Um, so we're seeing less and less of the self-discipline value from the top end of leadership. That does not mean self, the self-discipline structure isn't still very present in our culture, but I don't think that approach to leadership is one that's leading to thriving companies in, in 2018. 
Um, okay. The ambition value, probably still fairly um, skillful. Sensitivity, probably still fairly skillful. But I think the reason the development value is taking root the most in leadership culture is it's the developmental value that's best able to handle the complexity of the world you're attempting to lead in. And it's sure perhaps the best suited for the complexities of just of being a leader within a company or with people or within a school or within an organization. It's the one cool. that's the, the best adapted to the complexity right now. What I'm kind of dancing around here is this word of responsibility because it's going to come back heavily in schools. So I think what we're going to come back to is this idea of responsibility. If you are a leader in a business, you have a lot of responsibility. If you're a teacher in a school, you have a lot of responsibility. Um, in many companies, you don't need the people who are working further down in that hierarchy to have that same level of uh, development. They do not need to respond. They don't need to be as responsive and aware of the, of the world uh, around them, not to the level that you are. So in a more traditionally structured company, you would say that actually that explains why leadership goes down the development route and it's not really pushing it for other members of the community because they simply don't need it. Whereas I want to look now um, at some of the organizations that, that um, Lalu talks about in his book that you, you gave me a, a while back. They are deliberately organized around the value of um, development. And you talked about them a little bit. Yeah, and just in yeah. case people aren't familiar, I, I name-dropped this earlier, but the Lelou you're speaking of is Frederick Lelou, author of right, Reinventing sorry. Organizations. Okay. Yes, yeah, so you, um, you talked a little bit about these um, companies to these organizations. And from, from the book, and I haven't dug into it too much more, a lot of these companies seem to be successfully operating, especially I think the one that worked in the Netherlands with the kind of healthcare on the nursing kind of community that seemed to be very strongly based on these values and also very successfully kind of growing as a company. Yeah. Or, or as a, yeah. And that's a unique aspect, I think, of this developmental value where at times, not always, but at times, they can do another value perhaps just as good, if not better, than one of the values themselves. So I think one of the reasons why Frederick Lelou's book, Reinventing Organizations, has got a lot of attention is um, some people will look at some of these companies in here and go, wow, they've like nailed the ambition game. This is a very successful, you know, merit-worthy, financially well-off company now. And they used this kind of method that wouldn't have fit our traditional kind of ambition ideas of what a company would need to look like. Sure. And, and we are, it shouldn't come as a surprise that we're going to try and explain or show how these um, practices can, uh, could, in our belief, improve schools. Um, that's going to be a core topic for the rest of this kind of a podcast life. So self-management were 
there's peer relationships rather than hierarchies. This by itself would, would set most people, they would just, a lot of people would turn off just hearing this. Okay, I've heard it before. We don't need leaders. We don't need bosses. We're all going to work together. It's going to be beautiful. Um, peer relationships rather than bosses and hierarchies. Can you explain a little bit why that isn't quite as simple as, as, um, as just, hey, no more bosses anymore? <laughs> well, you know, this is on the edge of my understanding. The, you know, this is a world I haven't had a lot of direct personal experience with. Um, but I think the difference here is this isn't just the abandonment of hierarchy or the, let's go through each of the values and kind of, and highlight them here. This isn't the abandonment of the self-discipline pyramid just because there are negative aspects of a pyramid. This isn't just the abandonment of the meritocracy of the ambition value. This isn't just the abandonment of saying like, Oh, you know, some people get to positions of power who maybe ultimately shouldn't have had them, but they gamified the system. This isn't throwing that away. And this isn't also the, the tendency and the sensitivity value of leaning towards, well, we just need consensus. We, you know, we need group decisions here. It, it's not, I think at first glance, often people might associate this more with the sensitivity value and just say, oh, you know, this is about just doing things together as, you know, a communal group and, and making these decisions. It's not. What it is, is a shift away from the self-discipline and ambition pyramids and ladders, but it's also a shift away from this idea of group consensus. It's still, you know, rewarding merit, but at the same time, attempting to do that within a group relational setting. So there is like a subtle nuance of it's trying, trying to do the sensitivity thing of, yeah, let's, sh let's shift away from these hierarchies and bring it into the group. But it's taking it one step further and saying, but yeah, the group as a whole isn't calling the shots here. We're still going to have pockets and fractions um, and interconnected relationships on the individual level. And we're going to still run this on the individual level, not the consensus level, which would be more the approach, say, within the sensitivity value. Sure. And so the, the, one of the best examples from the book, I think, is the, the kind of nursing units in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, which seem to be, they, they would be a small enough unit that could decide how much work they would take on and how that work would be shared and who would do it and how they would support each other. I and mean, there's a lot of belief that people want to work and that the people want to be part of this team and they want to do it for the right reasons. And that actually increasing support is a way to keep everybody involved and included and to succeed and for people to remain self-disciplined because they owe something uh, they give and take. So, uh, yeah, I think we're not necessarily being, we're not necessarily boiling this down just yet, but it is in essence taking the best aspects of, of um, management or working together from all of those three values. It is saying that there is something that there, there can be a hierarchy 
but it's a flexible one and it can change. The same person may not always be in charge. We're playing to our strengths. Um, and what this should do is it should minimize the competition in its unhealthy aspects and it should maximize the healthier kind of working together and, ha and being healthily competitive for the team and for the, um, the service you're providing, in this case, nursing. Yeah, and I think that's the key is there may still be hierarchies emerge within a self-organizing developmental organization, but if they do, they're arising because those hierarchies would help the group and the individuals to better meet their needs. It's not starting with saying the hierarchy is a given. How do we make our method of operation meet our context? It's sort of like yeah. if there are those three pieces, there's a structure, which may or may not be a hierarchy. There's how we do things. And there's our context or like the situation the development of IU saying, well, let's start with the situation. Let's work back to the people and then see what structure is needed. Whereas it's an oversimplification, but the first three values would say, hey, we've got a structure that we do all the time. What's our context and how do we make this work with the people we've got? Sure. So this self-management, which is only one aspect of these companies that are developmentally led, would be... Um, something that we're going to have to dig in a lot more as to how it would look within a school. We'll touch on it briefly in the last part of this episode, but we're going to come back to it a lot more because it's the, for me, it is the bugbear when you talk about trying to move responsibility around or become a little bit more fluid. Um, um, there will be a lot of stereotypes and archetypes that will come up of like, hey, all responsibility is negated or the tragedy of the commons or all of these kind of negative connotations of trying to self-manage. And um, it's something I, I'm, yeah, we'll be digging into it a lot more. And I really believe it's possible. Um, but you don't have to think very hard to see where in the past management, self-management, group management has gone uh, really far off the rails. Um, the Lord of the Flies in, comes to mind. <laughs> yes <laughs> anything like that um but actually so, before we go on i think that's an important, that's an important aspect of this yeah um, i don't want to <laughs> i don't even want to try to personify the developmental value here but i think to some degree there is also the humility built into the developmental organizations to say hey you know what let's be honest this might also go to the Lord of the Flies, possibly. Um, there, there is an acknowledgement to some degree of saying, we are going to flexibly try this, and it might not be the way it needs to be. And hey, this could go really bad. So we need to keep that humility in mind in order to keep our flexibility open, that we're willing to sure. change as context, as situations change. I would argue that the boys from the Lord of the Flies were neither aware nor responsive to the <laughs> to the challenges that they were facing them in the second half of that book. Um, so I think um, I, I I think having that awareness and being responsive is where it's kind of if you're not talking from that place already, if you're not already talking from a, from a perspective where 
hey, I'm trying to be aware of what's happening and I'm trying to be really responsive to what's happening. Obviously, if you're not already thinking in those terms, then it's going to be very hard to imagine what a development organization could look like. Yeah, and a, a development organization also might not be the best fit. It might not be what's the best way to meet your needs. It's possible that just a sensitivity-valued centered system or an ambition system might be the thing. Um, I don't know the ins and outs enough of it, but I know Zappos, um, they had made a shift towards this kind of teal self-organizing, get rid of all the managers approach. And you know, I think it was sure. a matter of eight months or so where they went back and they're like, yep, we see that this might have its place, but this did not work for us. Now, there, there are also several factors why or why not it did. And you can argue whether or not they fully executed it or not. But, you know, there, sure. there is also the place to say that we're not saying this is the inevitable thing that everybody needs to move towards. Um, but it, it might be the thing, possibly, that solves problems you're having in your sensitivity-centered um, organization or possibly in your ambition-centered organization. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there is kind of the context in which your organization is happening. So if you're in a, in a, in a place that was very, very strictly hierarchical, the obvious answer would be that if you are trying to launch a development-led company there, it would have to be heavily skewed towards those kind of like self-discipline values just for you to exist in that context. So it may be that that's your awareness and your responsiveness and you're like, okay, well for now, this is the, this is the setup we need to have to exist inside this context. So the company you just described, I'm guessing they went in without really uh, aligning the development they wanted to make with the context that they were in with the, with the kind of like landscape they were actually operating in. Yeah. And, and if um, someone is an expert on Zappos, we'd be happy to hear more feedback on the Facebook page or something like that about some of the challenge that they faced. But I think, you know, I, I personally can name like three organizations I know who kind of wanted to become this self-organizing developmental organization just because it seemed really interesting and unique and totally yeah. different and exciting. And a year in, they realized like, oh yeah, this actually wasn't the best thing for our context. And, and two of the three I can think of off the top of my head reverted back to a more um, group-centric sensitivity kind of value, the, the previous value where they said, no, that in all honesty, this was actually better meeting our needs and our context than the development sure. value was. But that makes sense also with the idea of the three dials is that I've got to dial down these other two values really low at this point to keep the third value high, the sensitivity value high or the ambition value high because that's what's required just to exist in this kind of like paradigm. Um, well, definitely, this obviously we've touched on something that we're both really interested in here and it's going to be really really important because it's a hard sell to get into schools that's going to be something that when we do get to talk about these uh, schools that have implemented some kind of development values this is one of the things they do push um, and I'm really interested to see how they do it 
I'm just going to skip over two absolutely huge topics here of this idea of wholeness and bringing in your doubts and vulnerability, because I think you've touched on it there with the humility being an, a, a kind of integral or a very important part of this kind of development of value is that you are, you have your vulnerability and your doubts, the ambiguity is there, and you're trying to be a whole in the sense that you're trying to um, be the deal with and respond to what's happening in all aspects of what's around you. Yeah, and we can skip over this, but let me maybe just make a 30 second case here. The best way I've heard this said, um, I believe this is from the Everyone Culture book um, by Leahy and Keegan, is they just said like, look, ultimately in every workplace, everyone has two jobs. The first job is the job they've been hired to do. The second job is not look bad and try to look good. And the difficulty in every organization is an insane amount of time, an insane amount of resources, uh, and a sane amount of human effort is spent on that second job of sure. trying to not get fired um, and look good. And their argument, and they're kind of coming from this development value, is saying when you allow that wholeness and you can bring someone's shortcomings online and into the discussion, not even bring it online, like almost make it the center of your organization where you're having coaching meetings, where you want to find out your shortcomings. You want to find and expose what you are working on and developing in. When you do that, it saves this game of hide and seek, of hiding your shortcomings, and instead brings them in, it sort of releases all that energy. And companies who've done this have found they end up being far more productive. They find it they find that they are far more effective. Their teams work better together when you don't have to spend a majority of your time hiding your deficiencies. I think that sounds obvious. Uh, I'm not going to call you on it and <laughs> make you give me any, any names right now, but I would like to hear much more about the reality of how that works. Um, but what you're talking about there is investing in the people as, as humans and not just as workers. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like going back to the three goals again, isn't it? That now you're working for us. You're still a citizen. You're still a self, um, self-developing kind of human. And you're also a worker. And we got to kind of treat you as all of those three things, not just one of them, not just mm -hmm. as a, yeah. Um, okay. So we, we've got about 15 minutes left, I think here. Um, from my time and I wanted to move now finally into the thing that we're here to talk about is um, which is school <laughs> so you you went on for a while about how school was awful mm -hmm. and, um, and how you hate it um, is that right <laughs> 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 let me try again. let me try again okay no that, that, you, that there, there there is part of me well let's talk about wholeness there is part of me okay. that thinks school is horrible and a waste of time. There is also a part of me that thinks it's a very worthwhile institution that has a lot of potential for um, transformation and contribution to our world. Yeah, we're not in this because 
it's the only thing we can do. And we, you know, we got fired from every other job we've done. And so it's just, we're just going to like try this education thing for a while. It's, it's embedded in our thoughts and our work and, and our, our discussions. And one of the big ones is what you brought up was school. And now it's abstracted from life. How it's a abstracted reduction of life that generally is not particularly responsive or aware to the needs of the different groups that um, operate inside school, the students, the teachers, the parents, um, and the community as a whole. Um, but kind of more just bundle bumbles along using like rules of thumb and heuristics that kind of seem to work. Um, and there's kind of a belief that school has a duty um, to prepare um, for what's coming next. Um, it's, it's, it only has a duty to prepare students. It doesn't have a duty to teach, teach students explicitly how to be uh, like today in the now. It, everything is geared towards uh, next month, next year, the next step on the ladder, the, the work um, life that will come at the end of the 18-year uh, process. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know what to say in response to that other than, you know, I think schools, school, I think essentially has an impossible job, which is to say, we're going to get you ready for the world. We're going to get you ready for life. And yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how anyone or any institution um, has, the, has, the, has the gumption to believe that they can do that for millions of people within their country at the same time simultaneously. Well, I think the idea that we keep coming back to is that it's good enough. It's working. It's the rules of thumb are holding well enough. So why you got to keep, why you got to keep prying? Why have you got to keep pushing here? It's working. We're getting the people in the factories. We're getting the people in the schools. We're getting enough doctors. We're getting enough uh, of everybody we need for the society. And if we're not, we just pump a little bit more money into some training for a certain, uh, jobs or we will employ from overseas and so on so i think what we've kind of what we come across when we start talking about this is that for most discussions it's kind of comes down to it's good enough and well, also their kids <laughs> well, i think <laughs> it's good enough i'm not kids this this is perhaps where my developmental mask slips then because what we're talking about here is I think the more ambition centered idea of like, look, it, it's, it's serving its function enough. And if it's not, we can make it better. We can improve it. Sure. We can improve yeah. it and make it better. And I think, you know, this is where my kind of, Hey, let's burn it to the ground and see what happens. So, you know, bias slips in here is to say, no, maybe yeah. this, maybe, maybe we're on, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're on the cusp of some, discontinuous developmental potential here and what school looks like moving forward is not necessarily what it's looked like up till now we don't have to keep this 
I'm trying to make an analogy off the top of my head, but we don't have to take this, you know, piece of clay that we've been forming and improving over time. Mm. We don't need to continue to improve that. Let's start fresh with something entirely different. And well, I've used this analogy before. Let's say you're planning on going for a family vacation. You pack the trunk of your car with all the stuff you've always packed it with every year previously and you go, hey, you know what? Maybe we're not using that stuff as much anymore. Maybe we could bring some new stuff here. But the argument is sure. like, well, well, we'd have to take out the stuff that we've always brought on summer family summer vacations with us. And I guess yeah. what, what, where, where I'm coming from, and this is where my developmental bias leans in, is to say, hey, let's take everything out of the car and then choose to put the stuff back in there that would serve our family vacation. And that might be some new stuff, and that might be some old stuff. The argument here, to stick with your analogy, is that the vehicle is already moving. So, so it, <laughs> I, I kind of disagree with you on some levels that maybe that's not the best time. You can't stop this car. You can't stop school. School will continue right now, right now, all around the world millions of children are in school and that is going to continue it is not going to stop and we, we we cannot take a break in any sense it has to be evolutionary in the sense that um these kind of values will be almost drip fed until there's a tipping point i well let, i let's guess we disagree a little bit let's switch analogies then we might still disagree but let's switch analogies then away sure. from the car back to our sports analogy and we say that Self-discipline already has its game happening on the field. Ambition has its game. Sensitivity has its game. I guess to some degree what I'm saying is let's throw a, yet another game in there and let's get some more developmental players on the field and let's see how that impacts the developmental game. Let's see what equipment they borrow from the others. But let's also see what impact adding a fourth game to this mix brings to those other three. Sure. What I would say is that I think kind of school moves so slowly that we're really only seeing that sensitivity coming into school. And we're also really only seeing it emerge in society more and more. And I've been reading some Marshall McLuhan recently, and he kind of, he kind of preempted the internet the, or the concept that the internet is this absolutely fundamental change to everything we do. And I think this idea of the environment created by the internet is going to push forward this development value. I was going to bring forth a sensitivity value first. This is a simple narrative, and of course, things go off the rails, go backwards, go in any direction. But in the simple narrative, I think we're looking at 50 plus years of this sensitivity value emerging more in society and coming through in schools before we even start to see this kind of um before we start to see a development value really take hold either because just in terms of my simple logic this sensitivity needs to work out work through the problems that they're trying that we're trying to solve now that were kind of created by the ambition value the ambition value brought in a lot of uh, fantastic elements to it but it brought with it some issues and one of the big ones that the sensitivity value is trying to tackle now is the mental health issue and mm -hmm. i think 
this is going to play out over many years in many different contexts and scenarios. And actually development is still very, very small in that. And I could be wrong, but it, it will take its own sweet time to come through into that system. And that is really that we're going to be on the fringes with these schools that I guess we probably won't get much time to talk about in this episode. And with these schools, they're very much on the fringes. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Like if you think of the <laughs> millions of schools that exist currently, I'm able to highlight name drop five, maybe six schools that I would say are on the very cutting edge of starting to embody this development value. So I think that's sure. an important part for this conversation. There's probably been some immediacy in, in these first few episodes, probably from my side of like, all right, well, here's the situation and here's the, here's the new thing that I'm, you know, this development value in education that I'm really passionate about. But I think exactly what you just said, these things seem to have their own timeline of their own. There's maybe the case that each new value is emerging exponentially faster than the previous. I won't go down that road right now, but yeah, um, I totally agree. it's possible that the best thing we could do if we want to see developmental schools emerge more is actually to invest in sensitivity schools and like really do those fully, fully flesh them out, fully allow them to solve the problems and fully allow them to reveal their own shortcomings more and more because that's where developmental schools will likely emerge as a response to the deficiencies of sensitivity-driven schools. Well, if you buy into the story that we're selling here, that's what needs to happen. We need to keep working through the issues that are uh, that are raised by the feedback loops between these three values, and development will answer some of those and mm-hmm. will bring up its own problems. Um, should and we it- give it five more minutes here and then... Let's try to, and then let's take another hour. Because <laughs> the, the one little lingering problem there is, um, I agree that on the school level, the sensitivity value um, yeah. still needs its time to mature, as we just said, before the developmental value will seem like the obvious answer in school to, to address those issues. Happening okay. at the same time, synchronous what's the word I'm looking for? Synchronistically. My brain knows the word I'm trying to say, but I I don't know if that's a real word, but I know what you mean. At the same time. time, (laughs) To use a simpler word, at the same time. um, My story is that the world, (laughs) the context of being alive in 2018, um, this VUCA world, which I think is characterizing our world more and more, it is requiring this developmental value more and more. So whether or not school's ready to offer it, there's, um, there's a, there just seems to be this need for more and more of the developmental value in order to navigate the economy, citizenry, and your own life. Sure. I think it would be insane for us now to drop into these schools with a, with two minutes left of this hour. Let's, 
how do you feel about calling it there? And then, as you said, giving it another hour. So maybe, you know, uh, spending another 30, 40 minutes, um, maybe is another episode or is an extra part of this episode talking about the schools that are currently practicing development values. Yeah. Well, here's self-organizing organisms in action live in sure. front of us. Um, no, I, I think let's call it, let's call it a season there. And okay. just as, as a meta comment, um, yeah. yeah, Brendan and I, we've kind of pictured doing these in chunks and giving ourselves a bit of a break between, between seasons as we see them. And this sort of first season was just highlighting this idea of values and um, trying, to, trying to weave our story, tell our story, hopefully coherently, sure. of yeah. how these values are at play. We're going to take sort of a four-week break for ourselves and in six weeks have the first episode of season two. And in all honesty, I think at this point, we're not 100% sure <laughs> what that core organizing principle of season two will be, other than I think it makes sense to just start reaching out to these schools um, who I've got personal contacts with with a handful of them and, and just start to actually move from the abstract level, which we've been on this first season, to the, the practical level of what's actually happening in these schools. Absolutely. Great. I mean, I think we've set up there with those four, the, the previous 